This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Welcome to this masterclass with the team behind Trace. Uh, this was a very successful series on the ABC and we're lucky enough to be joined by the creative team behind it. Um, we've got Rachel Brown, the journalist, investigator and presenter of Trace. Martin Peralta, who is um, everything sound, <laughs> composition, Easy. recording, sound design for the podcast. And Tim Roxburgh, who's the co-EP of Trace. The series itself probably needs no introduction, but very briefly, um, the series followed a cold case investigation into the murder of Maria James and Rachel and her team um, spent many months talking to people impacted by her murder and incredibly Rachel's investigation revealed new information and new leads that have re-energised um, this particular case. So this is the first um, session as part of Journalism in Focus and we're really interested in this session in lifting the hood and seeing how, how this team and their collaborators managed to make um, such an engaging series and, um, and where to next. So we'll kick off and, um, and start with you, Rachel. Tell us why, why this investigation delivered as a podcast. Um, for those of you who haven't heard me talk about the niggle before, it, it was born out of a niggle, um, a colleague of mine who did a story on Adam James who um, had been abused by his local parish priest. When he came forward with that revelation, the detective involved said to her, stay on this because new witnesses come forward who, see, who saw a priest on the day of the murder covered in blood. So that, of course, got my spidey senses up. So I kept in touch with this detective whose name was Ron Idles. And the Marie James case was his very first homicide case as a 25-year-old detective constable. I called him a couple of months after um, and he said, yeah, it's really strange, nothing's ever come of that. Um, so that electrician's statement never saw daylight. In mid-2015, Father Bongiorno was ruled out as a suspect, which made me even more curious. So at the start of 2016, I thought I'd like to do a deep dive on this. So I approached uh, Mark and Adam James, who were the two sons of Maria James. They were 13 and 11 when their mum was murdered. Um, I sought their blessing uh, given I had the benefit of hindsight, I suppose, listening to Serial and reading Reddit posts about that. And I remember reading the brother of Hamin Lee had written on a Reddit page, you know, this is our life, it's not a story. So it was very important to me to get the blessing of the James brothers or I wouldn't have gone ahead. So that's how the story came about. I did get his blessing. Um, after 36 years it was then, he was still searching for answers for who killed his mum, living in this foggy holding pattern. Um, and in terms of the genre, podcasting had started coming out of this niche market 
newspapers had done a podcast, which is very frustrating for me because I saw the ABCs having the expertise and the resources mm. to do a podcast. Bowerville had come out by the Australian's excellent podcast by Dan Box. The Age had done Phoebe's Fall, so I thought it would be a good genre for it. Um, and also intimate. Um, I needed intimacy given the victims I was going to be dealing with. Some of them needed to be anonymous. And Adam James in particular, he has cerebral palsy and Tourette's. So I spent about four hours with him, which came to probably five to ten minutes of usable audio. Um, that wouldn't have been possible in a daily news grind day. So that the intimacy and the genre and not having a camera stuck up in his grill, that made for beautiful radio. And I think that's what was so important about doing this story as a podcast. And then, of course, the interactivity. I don't think we would have got people as emotionally invested if we did it in another medium. But to have to be in people's earbuds and to have people care about Marie James, that sparked a lot of the emails that we were, we were wanting in terms of new leads. Mm. You touched on your intent just now and um, other podcasts that, that have been published already. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Why, um, why dive into um, this case that, you know, that has harmed um, this family and why go through all of this? There's something voyeuristic about, you know, these, ki- these kinds of stories that, um, that can be a real turn-off, but, but your motivation was a bit different. Yeah, and I do I, – I get my back up when people call it entertainment because that's the last thing that I wanted it to be. Um, I started this because I loved the story, and even story sound, makes it sound a bit crass. It's, it's their life. Mm. It's their trauma. Um, so everything that we did, and the guys will also talk about this later, was keeping that as our touchstone. Um, I wanted to find answers for these two boys that had lived my entire life mm. without knowing who killed their mum. Mm. So that informed everything. It informed um, my voice. You know, I don't think we were voyeuristic. We tried to cut out a lot of gratuitous details that we could have run. Uh, it informed dark days and there were a lot um, what does that mean, dark day? Well, dealing with the material that I was dealing with, mm. um, hitting brick walls both in a bureaucratic sense and as in a story sense and friends and my colleagues had to keep reminding me, just remember why you're doing this, you're doing it for the boys. Mm. Um, it informed the rollout. So we had, and we'll get into this a bit later, but the way the episodes were structured, we did news breaks for each episode and some people complained about spoilers if they saw the news story before they listened to the new podcast episode and I made no apologies for that because this isn't entertainment. It was That was news, the stories that we broke and it was going back to our intent which was trying to hopefully solve this thing or at least get the James Brothers some answers. Mm. Um, it informed the marketing. You know, we didn't um, broadcast our download figures but I did talk about well, we're getting over 300 emails with new leads mm. and... Um, when we get to this a bit later, I can read you some of the reviews as well and it informed us sometimes deciding not to do an update mm. regardless of people saying, you know, you've dropped the ball, where's the next episode? So the, the touchstone at the heart of it was our intent and it was really nice to have that, to keep coming back to that. Mm. Thanks. Let's get back into um, the nuts and bolts of making it. So, Rachel, you'd been on the investigation for 16 months. You've gathered acres of material um, and you, you bring that to your team and, and you tell them 
we've got six or seven episodes here. Um, and actually, Brendan, if we can have a little look at the slide, um, we can get a little sense of, of where Rachel was going with that with her storyboard. <laughs> um, and so you took it to your team and, and what, what did they say? They had fresh ears and eyes. What did mm. they say? Um, so I'd done about 10 months or probably more, about a year investigation. It was ABC had never done this before so we had to carve out Trace's own path within the ABC so it was a difficult birth. So during that time I was investigating in my own time around my actual job. So I brought Tim and Marty a, a year's worth of investigation and I'd listened to S-Town and I remember having a lot of detail in there because I thought, well, this is the new way of doing podcasts. And um, Tim just stripped it bare. <laughs> and I was like, it's all my work and insights and observations and beautiful characters, you know, um, we'll hear about one later, Brian Ritchie. But, you know, and I just thought, oh, God, and... Tim was like, unless it progresses the plot, it's gone. So when I looked at it after our first meeting, um, I, all I saw was the cat sat on the hat. <laughs> can, we, um, can I stop you there, yeah. um, Tim? So your first response when Rachel brought you um, this material and, and what she thought was going to be a six or seven part series, what was, what was your first response to the material? Uh, well, I, I was really cautious about even getting involved in the project, frankly, at the start, because I, I, I wasn't really a huge true crime fan. Or, but a lot of the stuff that Rachel's talked about in terms of the way she'd approached the subject matter convinced me that it was um, there was something far greater here than a kind of morbid interest in, in a murder. Mm. And um, then, you know, I when I got all of that material, because there's heaps of stuff, she's been on this for probably a year at that point, mm. um, I just tried to pay attention to my own reaction to the material as it was passing th over my eyeballs uh, the, because, you know, that, at that point, it's actually a, it was a, an accident of the process that I came in so late, but it worked quite well because, you know, when you're confronting the material for the first time, you are like the audience, you know. That's, uh, so, you know, within hours of, of reading all of that material, I'd come up with an episode plan that was only about four episodes and we ended up sticking quite closely to that um to that plan which was sort of drawn up very roughly within only a few hours just because you know I wanted to trust my instincts about what I found interesting and compelling about the case mm. and also I felt like we couldn't take for granted an audience like the This American Life team could they had built this devoted following that would would go with them wherever they mm, went yes. and they went to, you know, Brian Reed and S-Town. But that story, it was, the episodes were very long, it was very literary, it was very descriptive. Mm. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, I think if you look back now at that, it was more an exception than the direction that true, true crime podcasting was heading in. Mm. It was because Brian Reed is a freak and he's an amazing writer and, he can do something that starts out as true crime and turns into a character piece. But that's not, you know, I, I we, myself and also Jesse and other, um, my other co-EP felt like we couldn't take that audience for granted to drag them through a 50-minute episode um, on a journey that they didn't know where they were heading and, and the ABC hadn't proved itself yet in that space. And so we just wanted to give people no excuse to bail out at all because I knew that once they got through the second episode, they'd stay, you know, they, and they'd... Be and amazed. Brendan, can we have a little look at um, 
at Tim's bash out of the four Fs. We've got, as part of Lifting the Hood here, we're showing you production notes and, and other, other documents from the journey. Um, <clears throat> and Rachel, when, when Jesse and Tim came back to you and said, you know, here's a dramatic uh, kind of change to, to um, the podcast series, what did you think? Did you agree with them? Did you push back? It hurt. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm not going to lie. Um, but they were spot on. You know, they, they really were. Um, it hurt because I was so invested. But the fact that Tim wasn't, you know, with me on the investigation actually helped a lot because he was seeing it with fresh eyes, mm. um, as the audience would. There were very clear, as you can see in there, Compare that to, you know, my post-it notes, random jumble that you just saw. Very clear narrative flags, which, which made my investigation sing louder, I think, um, because the investigation was clearer. You could tell that I was trying to go for both a compassionate and a forensic tone. When the bombshells dropped, they were clearer, mm. um, you know, and we were talking before, it's you can have the best of intentions for something like art and you can put it out into the world and it's not necessarily going to be translated or interpreted how you want. Um, but Trace was and that I think is something that we're all so proud of because it was interpreted exactly how we put it out and I think that's largely because of the script edit um, mm. because it was so clear and the tone, we nailed the tone I think. Um, and so even though I did want more of a serial observations and insights it was great that that was all paired back because Jesse and Tim both said to me, unless you get that right, um, and I'd never done a podcast before, unless you nail that, people might hate you. <laughs> right. So, and they were right. You know, at the time I remember thinking, oh, they're being so melodramatic. Um, <laughs> but he's right. And, and it worked because by the time you got to episode four and a little bit of me came out in terms of, you know, having someone give me DNA from a family, you know, um, related to Father O'Keefe, who was another suspect I started chasing, that you can hear my, not excitement, but holy shit, what just happened? Mm. And that started to come out in episode four and I think that was all the more powerful for it because we'd held back earlier. Mm. Tim, what did you and Jesse automatically <clears throat> strike out? What didn't you want in this, in this series? <laughs> we pretty much just got rid of every, every adjective the first... Every adjective. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to get into this. The first episode was particularly important in the sense that I didn't want to get into it um, on the basis that we should assume the audience is going to care about this family, this poor family. And, you know, we needed to give the audience reasons to care and reasons to stay listening. And every sort of piece of tape and piece of script had to have a kind of vector for it, if that makes any sense. It had to be heading somewhere. Instead of just existing, for example, as a description of Maria James, um, what a great person she was, or what there was a lot of character description in the first episode that um, I took out because I, I mean, I actually, not being a true crime fan, I find it traumatic when you sort of mm. you're describing these people who you know are about to get killed, or that that to me was not that was not interesting to me as a reader. What I found interesting was. Ron Idle saying that this was his first case and it, it and he'd never solved it and it had bugged him his entire career so that went up the top and mm. we took out a lot of the stuff about Maria and um, we really just stuck with her 
got on this plot train that just sort of was yeah. a bit unstoppable. And then our aim was to have you get to know the characters through the plot rather than the other way around, setting mm-hmm. up these characters and then putting them on a journey. And what did you work to keep? What did you, what did Rachel <laughs> deliver that you thought, let's preserve this, this is... This well, it was, it was a good... I mean, we had, there was a lot of arguments. Like, we <laughs> argued, like, for hours about various bits and pieces. Um, is there a specific example you can share? <laughs> yeah, I uh, can Just, like, one. everything. I mean, every... All of these... I just... I had butchered her, her, her... This beautiful... You know, she'd spent hours crafting these descriptions and I'd just drawn these big red lines through all this. <laughs> so, I mean... But then what happened was... I think that, that argument was a really productive... Um, work process in the end because we were both had this challenge of convincing the other person that mm. no this really has to stay or this really has to go and um what i think we were left with was some really sparing description which was all the more powerful for being sparing so mm. yeah. it was a, a bit of a waltz i think um i would give tim my scripts and jesse with lots <laughs> of detail and tim would strip it there <laughs> and then i would sneak some stuff back in and he'd take out some but leave a little bit just to humor me i think mm. there was a beautiful character brian ritchie who threw the book literally at father bongiorno during a, a police interview he was an old homicide cop and in his in his you know older years he's become a santa and i just love the idea of this grizzly homicide cop <laughs> moonlighting as a santa and when I interviewed him about hypnotism, they hypnotised um, one of the guys to see, you know, um, they hypnotised a garbage man um, who might have seen something that morning. And Brian Ritchie, when he was telling me about hypnotism and an old, like, gold fob watch, he had a cuckoo clock behind him from Germany and they kept going, cuckoo. And I'm like, he's talking about hypnotism. This is perfect. Tim, just out. I'm like, no. So we fought for ages about that bloody cuckoo clock, but... It was perfect for Esther. I mean, there's all these amazing Baroque detail, incredible, mm. hilarious Baroque kind of details of about characters and scenes and so on. But yeah, perfect for Estown and and you know we Jesse and I had this mantra, you know, less Estown, more in the dark. In the dark was a much more kind mm. of sparing and pared back podcast um, mm. out of um, NPR reports and APM reports in the states. Mm. So very productive collegial. I've never enjoyed fighting, you know, with people more than Tim and Jesse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's, I mean, she knew the story, but more than any, like she knew this inside out. You know, mm. she was close to the brothers. Like, you know, it was those those arguments. That's why I turn up to work. It's fantastic. <laughs> Do you know what Jesse Jesse Cox, who was the series producer, he, you know, genius. He um he passed away early this year, and he's such a big loss to the ABC and to art in general. And he um, he stripped out Brian Ritchie and he said, have a listen to this. And so I listened to it and, you know, he'd cut things out. He's like, don't look at the script, just just listen, listen. and see if you like it. This was for Ep 2. And so I listened and I'm like, yeah, that's great. It's really tight, career's along. It wasn't until I went to bed that night, I was like, that bugger, Brian Ritchie's gone. <laughs> but she didn't know. And I didn't know. <laughs> so this is why I just, I learnt to trust them because they, yeah, most of the most times, they most, were always right. The coolest. <laughs> most, most of the time. Um, Brendan, could we jump to, um, to the next slide and just have a little look at, um, at how the structure landed? Next one again. Okay, that's your script. All right, we'll come back to that. Martin, I want to bring mm. you in. <clears throat> so a lot of people here have a background in film and TV um, where there's uh, multiple people, if not teams of people, who work on how, on how a film sounds. You do 
you do any number of, of jobs. So you record um, the presenter, you create a soundscape, mm-hmm. and you also compose for this co- podcast. Is that right? Yeah, so I worked with Rachel initially to get the right, what would you call it, Feel. presenter style or sound. And then, yeah, I did all the sound design, the editing, um, the interviews, which were maybe a bit noisy, cleaning them up, mixing, composing. And I think like the overall sort of sound aesthetic to the whole thing. Mm. Um can you tell yeah. us your first response to the material? Same question that I had for Tim. What was your first response to, to, to what you saw and what you heard? So my first... When was the first time? I heard something uh, Tim gave me. I think it was the first mix of the original version of. And it was very... It was great, but I thought it was a little bit too dramatic. Um, but it was great, just not my particular style. Um, and I think Tim agreed and said, oh, we need to pare it back. And like you said before, we need to make it a bit more sparse. Um, and so, yeah, agreed. But I didn't actually start work on it till maybe like a month or two after that. Mm. So my first sort of day on the job was with um, Rachel, who I met that day. And we were in a studio all day just recording the episode one, take one script, which changed quite a bit. So you're giving us the sort of functional information, but also, I mean, what kind of feel does this story oh, okay. need to have? You know, what's um, because you, we were listening to some of Marty's work when you all came in, and there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> so what 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 did you? How did you want the audience to feel when they were listening to this series? Well, initially, I was like, oh, how is it going to sound? I was like, oh, it's in the '80s. And I really like synthesizers. So I was like, it's (laughs) going to be all synths. Everything is synths. Um, That was a bad idea. I tried it, but it really didn't work. And I was like, oh, maybe like Aussie rock, you know, because it's grungy and I'll get guitars. And that was also wrong. And then I've never really scored anything, but I thought, oh, that's something I'd like to do. So maybe I'll I'll use this project as, um, not an experiment, because that's the wrong word to use, but as an attempt to try and score the, 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 the whole thing as like a big project. So it's like one long project rather than little episodes. Um, so the way I saw it was it's, it's going to be four episodes, it's going to be this big, and it's going to go like this. Um, but I didn't know what this meant or what it was going to really sound. But anyway, I started working, and what I fell on was sort of like Icelandic-y um, scoring, like from Borochurch or... Um, Niels Fram, this Berlin composer, and I was like, oh, that's who I want to be. So when I started uh, <laughs> putting their music into the mix, I was like, oh, this is perfect. It's like, it's exactly how it should sound. Um, so it's this sparse sort of music, soft sounds, and it doesn't ever really get in the way. Mm. So the interviews, the, you know, because there's some really hard moments and really tough topics, and I didn't think... Well, personally, I didn't want to hear anything too um, that was getting your attention too much. I just want to like ambience and, and space. Mm. So that, that's kind of how I got to that point via synths and rock. And <laughs> that's where I ended up. And as, you know, Jesse and 
Rachel and Tim were arguing about the words. Mm. Were you showing them? I was also drafts? arguing. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I was also arguing because there were some things that I thought too much was taken out as well. Like some of the stuff I was like, I think we need more of this or more of this character. Um, I think Tim had moved on at that point and I was working with Jesse most of the time and online with Rachel. And I think Rachel and I were sort of teaming up sometimes and arguing against people. And then, <laughs> you know, I would have to argue for Rachel because she's in Melbourne. Like, no, we need this and we need that. Anyway, I was arguing as well. Terrific. We were really friendly though. We're, we're nice <laughs> <Yeah>. people. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Should we have, um, we'll have a listen to uh, an early version of the opening of your um, of your series and, and we'll hear an early version of the script that was subsequently um, revised significantly um, and we'll hear your music in this as well, Marty. No, not the old, one. the old one. No. Oh, this Sorry. is the old one. Okay. Yeah. I think Sorry. this should be the old yeah. one. Okay. Let's have um, Brendan, can we have a listen to that? In June 1980, Maria James was murdered in her home at the back of her bookshop in Melbourne, Australia. Mrs James was stabbed 68 times in both the front and back and had three gashes in the skull. She was a single mother of two boys, 11 and 13 years old. Um, and I arrived home and the books up and, and they were gone. Just about every day, Mum is in my mind. It, it's, it's painful that... There's no resolution. Nearly 37 years later, they're still holding out hope her killer will be found. There's no doubt someone knows what happened. Let's try and find that person. I'm Rachel Brown, and this is Trace, an investigation into the brutal death of Maria James. Maria died the year I was born, and I've been looking into her murder for the past year. With a crime like this, there is always a trace. A crumb, a shadow, something overlooked. That was my suspicion when I first came across this case. And as it turns out, I wasn't wrong. Okay, so there's a few things I, um, I want to draw everyone's attention to. I mean, Rachel, firstly, the, the writing, the writing. Um, what are we... What... what What's in that that subsequently changed? And um, So that was probably the start of a pilot I did in August 2016 before it was commissioned. Um, that's largely how I started the pilot. Um, and I wanted to give people this idea that we're looking for maybe something tiny, a shadow around a corner, a crumb, any piece of information because I wanted to tug on people's conscience or heartstrings to come forward. So I wanted to go with that. But in the end, and it, it worked, what we changed it to, um, I think we started with Ron Idles and that idea of, similar to the boys, but the same striving for something over so many years. Mm -hmm. You know, he starts this case that consumes him as it ended up consuming me when he was 25 years old, you know, and, and it really stuck its hooks into him. So that's what we came to start um, the new version of, of episode one. And what about your performance? And this is something that I think Marty and, and you worked on together and imagine with a lot of input from, from the team. Mm. We hear you very much, well, f 
I feel in a, in a journalist sort of role, mm. it, there's a formality and the predictable cadence. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about about that? Yeah, it was it was really hard unlearning 15 years of newspeak, and you do it, you know, subconsciously. So I went into the booth, and I remember Sophie and Jesse were in there one day, and Jesse said, "Turn your script over. Just talk. Tell me who was Ron. Why why does this case bug him? What is he doing in his spare time?" Mm. So we were just having a chat, and then he said, "That." I want that. Now turn your script over and read. And you'll notice the difference when you hear the new start of episode one. Mm. And then Marty helped me. Um, so as a broadcaster, you know, I'm feeling like I have to deliver to however many thousands of people. And they needed to get me in this mindset that I'm just talking to one, you know. And it became very, like, close and confined mm. and slow. And all my colour and intonation had to be in this really confined space. Mm. And what we landed on, I think, is how I read to my three-year-old nephew, Ollie, (laughs) um, because that's how I tell him bedtime stories because it needs to be soothing, nothing too jarring that's going to wake him up but engaging. Mm. Um, I'll have to tell him about this when he's older. But So we landed Mm. on that voice and um, Mm. Marty said, there it is, Rach Noir. And I listened and I'm like, but I sound bored because it's so different to what I'm used to. But... um, yeah, counter, I, counter, counterintuitively, we had to we had to make Rachel less expressive, mm, less mm. in order to tell this story because you, what I didn't really know this either until we were in the middle of doing it. But but it turns out that the news voice is quite is quite expressive and it has a lot of ups and downs and it's you're there because you're trying to sell the story to the entire nation and, um, but if you've got headphones on, that sounds really like oh you like don't sell this to me like I've pressed play on this I'm here because mm. I. I want I want to be here, so you just it, it, we, like we put, brought her a lot closer to the mic and um, yeah. and yeah, flattened out. I kept saying like less expression, less expression, <laughs> um, because you know when you're talking to your friends, you're not you, you you're not selling anything to them. You talk, you just you're their friend, mm. telling them a story. So, from a technical point of view, Marty, what um, what did you change about the way um, you were recording, Rachel? I actually don't know what you did in Melbourne, how you recorded it, but in Sydney it was a pretty simple record. Oops. Um, just a close mic and a well-lit room. <laughs> that was it, I think. But it's um, also about like hearing it down the line and saying, you know, Marty would be there being like, do it again. Oh, it sounded, that sounded weird. Because yeah, yeah. the first couple we d- I did in Sydney with them, which was great because I was yeah, in the same room. It got harder because yeah. a, a lot of the times we would have to record just pickups. So maybe like 10 lines. Um, and Rachel being in Melbourne, we'd have to find a studio and that studio would always change. So the, the quality of the sound would always change. So that was a constant sort of battle as well. Sometimes too you'd play that back, like it was good. You'd put oh, me yeah. back in my own head. So um, Marty would play a Previous, paragraph to yeah. me if I was doing it from Melbourne so I could drop back into that mm. Ollie voice okay. that I was talking about. Mm. And we heard in that early version of your opening, um, it, was this a dramatic music, Marty, that you felt was wrong? So that small piece doesn't really like um, showcase you know all of the sound but um there's moments where it's um it's it's a bit sinister like it sounds like you know something evil is going to happen happen and that kind of didn't like that i didn't want people to think oh 
it's like a horror soundtrack or something mm -hmm. that wasn't really what I thought was right. But I also didn't want to um, dismiss what the previous composer did. So I still used um, quite a bit of his music um, in Trace, but the bits that fit and some, um, some of the, the pieces he wrote were really good for particular scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and the opening I definitely used as an... Um, like um, I took inspiration from, I guess, for how the new one sounds. I didn't want to, you know, just go in and, you know, throw all of his stuff away because that's, that's not nice. It's not, not <laughs> nice. Should we also, to be fair to that composer, like he, I think that was, that was probably a pretty good response to the brief that that composer was given. Like that, there was a, because of some weirdness, there was a, there was a team like people like me came onto the project late, and we had completely different ideas about how it should sound and Marty responded to those which were less much less yeah like less horror vibe I suppose or less true crimey even mm. should we have a listen to the opening as it as it came to actually go to air um Brendan you want to play that first? ask any ex-homicide cop about their biggest regret and they'll tell you about the one that got away that case they couldn't quite crack Mrs James was stabbed 68 times in both the front and back and had three gashes in the skull. Some people would say, draw a line in the sand and move on, but I've always had this view. The answer is always in the file. Ronnie Dools is your classic homicide cop. His face lined by years of late nights, fueled with bad takeaway food and worse coffee. Ron spent 25 years as a homicide detective. This year he retired, after close to 40 years in the force, and he's moved to Queensland where he can stay warm and finally relax a little. He hung up his boots with a near-perfect strike rate, 99% of cases solved. But there's one case that he can't quite let go. It was the first homicide case he ever worked on, and it's never been solved. Homicide and forensic squad detectives spent today painstakingly searching the murder scene. Maria James was murdered in 1980. Mrs James, a mother of two boys, aged 13 and 11. For more than three decades, Maria's sons, Mark and Adam, have lived in a kind of holding pattern. There is absolutely no doubt whoever killed Maria told somebody. This is Trace, an investigation into the murder of Maria James. I'm Rachel Brown, and I've spent years covering police and court rounds, but for the last couple of years, it's been this case that's really got its hooks into me. Because I heard something on the grapevine that made me suspect something, or someone, had been overlooked in the original investigation. A piece of evidence, a trace. Turns out I wasn't wrong. There's far more to this story than police ever knew. Why does why does that opening work in your view? Uh, one of the reasons is that um, I felt like the initial version didn't give me any reason to care about this case above any cold case. Like there are so many cold cases out there, and there are so many people waiting for answers, and there are so many people, you know, families that have had horrible things happen to them. Why why this one and for me, that question was answered as I was looking at the material for the first time 
when I started hearing from Ron because Ron's had an entire career as a detective and yet this is the one that sticks in his mm-hmm. brain and that in, it immediately catches my interest. Why? What, what is it about this one? Mm. Oh, that was his mm. first one. He's never solved it. He had a 99% success rate outside of this case. Like, And then, you know, that was enough to, to, to put me on the train you mm. know, of caring about it. And what about Rachel's performance in this clip as opposed to the previous one? What's what's different there and, again, why, why did um, this one? Yeah, I think it's just, uh, as we said, you know, she's, she's much closer to the microphone and she's not, she's, there's no sense of trying to sell this story. Mm. We're just kind of easing into it, you know. We, we start with, um, we sort of start telling the story in a, in a really um, laid-back and subtle way rather than um, that broadcast voice that's trying to sell you a story across the other side of the kitchen when you're trying to make some food or something like this is a headphone situation where you know Rachel is just talking to you very intimately Mm. and Rachel can you tell us a bit so the first four episodes went to air Mm -hmm. um what next uh, so the first four went to air on, between June and July last year and then we did an episode five in September um, and also a mini-ep um, 2.5, which was from new leads that we had coming forward. I'm in a tricky spot now because there's things that need to happen that I can't do, you know, um, that Victoria Police needs to retest Maria James's exhibits to see if it can find a new DNA sample of the killer the Victorian coroner needs to decide whether or not she'll be reopening this case. Um, I presented her with eight new facts and circumstances and thought it was a no-brainer. Um, but recently there's been a jurisdictional argument over whether it needs to be her to de- her deciding whether to reopen it or the Supreme Court because it falls under an old act of the coroner's court when the Supreme Court made those decisions so just it was you know two steps forward one step back for the James brothers because just when they thought that they were going to have their case reopened now this jurisdictional argument is playing out but hopefully that's so that's in court next month so hopefully that will be sorted out soon after that um so for me it's just frustrating because I I do genuinely want to be doing updates um and but we come back to the touchstone which is you know it's not entertainment it's this family's traumatic life and so I keep getting, you know, questions like that. No offence to you. Um, but, you know, where is it? Why have you stopped? You know, you promised us you were going to try to solve it. And then, you know, we haven't heard anything. And I'll read you some reviews if you like. Um, actually, I'll do that now. <laughs> so we went from Rachel has cleverly dug up some new leads and angles, which most podcasts of a similar nature don't do, as they just recap existing knowledge. The host is professional, respectful to both the subject and the people she interviews. Highly recommended listening to now where's the story gone waiting don't hold your breath for upcoming episodes sheesh showed potential but fails to progress the case far to bring answers for maria's family it just stopped no explanation considering the media coverage when this first came out i really thought we would hear more about finally solving this case these listeners writing yeah on itunes reviews and i feel like you know nasa 77 i would love to bring you another update (laughs) I i really would but this is not entertainment. It's not fiction. It's I can't write you an ending. I'm not going to write you an ending, you know. And they've waited for 37 years. So if nothing, I mean, this, this anxiety and, 
you know, weight that's pissing people off. That's what they've lived with for 37 years. So if we've nailed that feeling, I think we've done a good job. But yeah, we, we would all like to do a new update. Um, but I can't go around swiping people's DNA all over the state. Mm. And I can't ask things of, of certain people that the coroner needs to. So we all just have to be a bit patient. But I do think there'll be, you know, developments soon on bo- from both Victoria Police and, and the coroner. You skipped over it a bit, but could you share with us in some more detail um, the audience response and how that did generate some new information and and new leads? I was floored by the response. Um, Like I said before, you can put things out into the world and not really know how they're going to be received and, and um, and thankfully the team felt this as well. My intent was to... Um, produce a very compassionate but also forensic story and so to put it out there and to have people a stick with what is very dark material you know sexual abuse satanic ritual abuse cover-ups by institutions potentially Um, they've stuck with that they've emailed me new leads you know one made a mini episode a lot I'm working on at the moment I just don't say on Twitter um you know, incredible to mobilise that kind of audience, you know, and that I do really feel is because of the genre, because I'm in people's earbuds and they're emotionally invested and they want to help. Mm. And the live crosses that we did on, like, local radio, for example, and that was the beauty of the ABC, we could hit every platform. You know, I could go on local radio and say, you know, for those of you who don't know how a podcast works, you know, maybe could you ask your daughter or your granddaughter? Because the generation that I was hoping to hit might have heard of the word podcast before. So that was important too. Um, yeah, so they stuck with the material, gave me some really good leads um, and thirdly wrote some really lovely emails and reviews about how impressed they were with the tone that we struck. Mm, terrific. And um, without getting into the fine detail of the complexity of working at the ABC. Um, how has this podcast forged a new new opportunities for collaborations between people working in traditionally different parts of the ABC? Uh, yeah, it's it, it was a thing that didn't had no logical home in a way. I mean, Rachel comes from what a new, the news part of the organisation. Um, Marty and I came from at that point, what was Radio National. Um, so it, it, something like this requires all these different kind of kinds of expertise and that was sort of hard sometimes to put the jigsaw together. But um, there are various processes in, internally underway to kind of deal with that problem and um, uh, I'm now working for one of those projects, which is so doing working solely on true crime audio um, but we're actually working entirely across platforms. So the unit that I'm working for is we're actually at the moment making podcasts at the same time as we're making television. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real new experiment. So as someone who you said earlier on, you don't like the genre, true crime. This is now <laughs> what you're doing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I eat my words. But I think that the, 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 you know, Trace was the perfect way in for me because what I do love and have always loved and always wanted to do is um, combine investigative journalism with the narrative um, podcast format. And, you know, true crime, if done properly, is in a way the perfect um, place 
to do that because you start out i mean you have plot um you have something that's going to take people through a whole bunch of episodes you have something that unfolds but you also have something that can touch on much broader issues of importance in society that go far beyond a sort of morbid interest in a in a murder or a crime and so that's you know that's the 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 filter that i'm trying to bring to pictures that come towards me is that it has to speak beyond that case to something Mm. broader and thankfully all the things we're working on at the moment do (laughs) and um steve bibb head of factual at the abc is here i don't know if either of you can can share any information about the things you're working on or the things that we can expect Mm. (laughs) we do have spill the goss we do have a microphone great thank you um it, it's really interesting. This is very ABC. So around the same time these guys were doing uh, doing Trace, at the same time we were working with Ron Idles on Conviction. <laughs> Conviction was a uh, documentary we had which um, looked at, um, which Terry Carline made, won the Logie for um, Most Outstanding Documentary, uh, looked at the Jumar case. And obviously it was um, a great, great piece of work by Terry to, to make that happen. Um, so it's interesting, we're working on true crime over here in a very ABC way. You guys almost on the same floor, but at the other end of the building are doing true crime over there. Now we're together doing this thing um, which we call loosely under the banner called Unravel. So we, we work very closely now um, across those platforms. We have a number of different titles in production in true crime. We're actively looking for true crime um, ideas, especially for, for next year, I think it's fair to say. And they're obviously ideas that have to work across with podcasts, ideally with documentary television and also um, with online. I guess the third spoke in the wheel is the online part of it as well. So we're looking for, for titles. We've, we've got, um, in terms of television, we've got three, there are currently three titles in production. Actually thrown four, there are four titles in production. Um, can I say what they are? Look, the one is called um, Baron Joey Road. That looks, um, that's been made by a producer in Sydney, looks at a, a um, case of a woman who went missing in 1978 on the northern beaches of Sydney. Um, fascinating story which has all sorts of uh, tentacles into the New South Wales police force and there's a podcast with that as well. How many podcasts are we doing there? How many episodes? Um, don't know yet. We're, we're, we're working, working on episode that. plans but it'll be yeah. probably six. Six, I think it's six, and, isn't it? you know, we've got this all of this new back and forth that we need to do about yeah. who's going to reveal what when and what, when this you're going to release this episode dance. and it's that an TV thing. Dance, yeah. and so it's a new world. Yeah, because the current idea is we, the release thing is interesting. We're thinking currently maybe two or three podcasts come out. Then the f- next podcast lines up with the documentary, a weekly documentary and sort of how that works going forward over the next few episodes is really interesting and how it works together. So that's a good example of the, the sort of different... Um, Disciplines working well together. Hmm. Great, stay tuned. Thank you. But we're looking for ideas, so come and see us. <laughs> mm. And that's a, you know, it's a work in progress. That how how do you? Fr- there are all sorts of challenges and opportunities in that space. Like we get the opportunity to make probably more podcasts of a scale that we haven't been able to do in the past. Um, but also, then, how do you get that intimacy that you get with podcasting when you've got a television crew? in the room so we've got some podcasts now where um we're doing some interviews for podcast only because the people who are talking don't want to talk 
on TV. So that'll go only in the podcast bit and not in the TV bit. So, yeah, it's interesting how you those things are all being divided up. Now. That's terrific. Um, we've got about 10 minutes now for questions. Um, you can – there's two ways you can do it. You can type a question into um, your AIDC app or you can go old school and just raise your hand um, and we have a volunteer who can provide you with a microphone. Thank you. Um, when you're talking about these multi-platform experiments where there's the same story told across different places, do you have the same audience in mind? Do you imagine that people will watch the TV you know, version the radio also listen um, to the podcast and then... We've decided not, largely to not worry about that too much. So there was initially a bit of sort of angst about overlap and we've kind of thrown that out the window a bit and decided that, well, maybe they are quite separate audiences um, and we want to give the full experience to people who are coming to us no matter what platform they're coming to us on. So we don't want to pull our punches on one platform because we're holding that back for TV or, or we don't want to, you know. So, the, for example, the project that Steve just talked about, Baron Joey Road, the story is unfolding in quite a different way um, on the different platforms. Um, and we're imagining that probably podcast audience will skew a fair bit younger than TV audience. Um, and, yeah, we're not really worrying about doubling up if people want to watch or listen to both, they can, but we're certainly not going to assume that we're not going to hold something back from one platform because we're worried that people will do that. Other other questions? Oh, yeah, hi. Uh, Rachel, I think you've done a fantastic job with Trace. Um, me and my you. partner, uh, we really enjoyed um, how you've presented the material and especially just wanted to... Um, just reaffirm to you that your tone is spot on (laughs) (laughs) and that I think you're bringing a really different style of a podcast for true crime because normally you know we hear you know the start to end um, and it's all nicely wrapped up but you know I guess what me and my partner are really um, interested in is that it is still an investigative um, it's still going on um, and we're we're coming along for that ride with you um, and not in a perverse way um, because I live in the city of Darabin um, and it literally is just down the street from me. So hearing you talk about it and walking down that same street, it really brings everything alive. Um, I guess asking this question is is no disrespect to Ron because I think he is a fantastic man um, and I follow a lot of what he does. But has he ever mentioned you, to you that, you know, was it his age or experience lack thereof experience that has possibly not solved this case so thank you very much for all of that um i i appreciate feedback like that so thank you um and no he hasn't and there was a there was a core team of four i have heard from other people along the street um which we didn't put in but that someone made the comment of you know they let ego get in the way and i don't think this was for ron because it was his first gig on on the homicide case Um, I've never been able to ascertain whether or not that was correct. I don't know whether it was because a woman was at the heart of it, you know, the same year, um, sorry, not long after there was the easy street murders and similar criticisms had been made, you know, of of crimes where women are involved was enough attention given to it, I'm not sure. Um, They made big mistakes, and Ron will be the first to admit to this, is that they didn't look at men of the cloth 
you know, they were invisible. Um, they back then, they weren't even known to be guilty of pedophilia, let alone murder. So I think that was a massive blind spot for him. And he will be the first to say we were wrong not to question them or not to, you know, even look at them. And we were wrong. And this is his, um, he feels is his biggest failing of this case, not talking to Adam, you know, because he had the answer, um, perhaps has the answer still locked away in his head now. And so they need to spend time with him um, and try to draw that out if there's anything else that he's, he's seen or he's heard and that might be able to help them. So those, those I guess, would be the two big ones. And, of course, because of the DNA bungle, um, which I think was only revealed largely because of Trace's pestering with emails to Victoria Police, they were chasing, you know, a ghost for 16 years. They could still be using that faulty sample to, to rule in or rule out suspects. So, yeah, lots, lots went wrong with that case. I just wanted to ask Tim, um, you mentioned you came into the project relatively late and you reviewed the material that Rachel had given you. I just wondered what form that material took. We saw the post-it notes and so forth, but I just mm. wondered, did you sit down and talk with her or was it sort of written, organised, synopsis-based? Yeah, we had, no, we had one relatively lengthy phone conversation. There was a the script of a pilot episode. Um, there was an episode plan. There was a whole bunch of sort of research documents like um, lists of interviews. Um, it was very well <laughs> laid out. And there and was a lot, of, a lot of information. Two and some of Ep3 by then too. Yeah, so. right, yeah. Um, so yeah, I could kind of see... There was, there was a lot of material that did, sort of did, didn't end up going in. Um, but yeah, I just immediately was struck by um, Ron Idles and the revelations about the two priests. Those, I mean, I was just looking for those moments where I was going through all these documents, being the moments where I kind of was like, oh my God, that was, you know, just write that down and that's got to form a big plot point in the series. Um, and also, you know, hearing about the fact her relationship with the family was another thing that got me over the line. <laughs> <laughs> And I think too with with Marty, so Tim went, as I was saying before, developed very clear narrative flags, which was beautiful. But a big lesson for me in this exercise was learning to lean on people, that it didn't, I didn't have to carry it. You know, Tim was carrying it, Marty carried it. You know, the music did so much heavy lifting um, that I thought I had to put into detail and I thought I put into the, have to put into the grabs. And Tim's like, the grabs are fruity enough. You know, you don't need to inject detail. And with, with Marty's score, it was divine you know like he had sound like a wind sound through it um, to make you feel like things were being blown away over the years things that you wouldn't even realize are in there are in there like the sound of a little dog lead so you feel like you're outside and hearing his theme you know I got tingles when I heard it the first time because it's that the cello and the strings of the nostalgia and the melancholy of these boys struggle and, and Maria's story and then the dirty synth and drums that created that striving and, and mystery and then it climaxes and crashes into this abyss but then you've still got the kind of um, synth under the whole thing like still plodding along still continuing so for me that was a big lesson that you can let music do a lot of that heavy lifting I think I finished the theme 
the day before we launched it. <laughs> so that was the actual first time that probably Rachel actually heard it. Mm. And I was a bit worried. <laughs> no, but there's like something that's played like, it to Jesse. I was, Jesse's like, you know, like he was, <laughs> he was like, come on, you got to finish it. It's been like two weeks. <laughs> I had two weeks to do it. But, um, but that's why I want to work with Marty cool. again, because like, not, not because he works stupid hours you push me or, or like finishes <laughs> late but because um th- this process of like finishing a theme but then oh but what now race was changed the words so now i'm gonna he like goes back to the instruments like marty will be sort of like shuttling in between editing and then go oh actually i need to hang on pull out a guitar or um and so that was kind of new like yeah so a lot of the music that i wrote i didn't actually render off as one song i rendered off as four or five tracks so that I could chop them up and, and make it fit the script. And um, then those pieces of the song also go through effects and things to make it fit the scenes and hit the right points and stop at the right time or start at the right time. Um, I felt that if i you know, writ- written music and kept it at that, then it wouldn't really fit as well as I wanted to. Um, We're almost so out of time, Marty. Yeah. I can see it flashing. I, um, <laughs> yeah. Ten seconds. The theme also changed every every episode. Yeah, it got darker. We could probably talk for a lot longer about your process, but that's, that's all it. we have time for. Thank you for your questions. And um, I'm sure the audience would agree, you know, it was clearly a really successful collaboration and um, a beautiful series. And I really hope we see more from, from you all as individuals and as a team. Um, this session is part of Journalism Plus, or sorry, Focus on Journalism. So there's another session at 1.30 that I encourage you to come to called Journalism Plus that's about the collaboration between journalists and documentary filmmakers. And then this afternoon in The Cube, um, there's a session called Dramatic Narrative in Journalism and you'll see Deb Masters and Sarah Ferguson talk about their collaboration. Um, if you could join me in thanking Tim, Marty and Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. you have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website. <laughs>